a dissertation on a means of regeneration by Gardner Spring, pastor of the Brick Presbyterian Church in the city of New York. This is published in the year 1828, but originally was published in the Quarterly Christian Spectator, the theological magazine that came out of New Haven, which became Yale. And this is a dissertation. There is a very desirable harmony of views among all evangelical men in relation to the reality and importance of that radical transformation of character which the Bible calls regeneration. The necessity of this change lies in the total sinfulness of all mankind by nature. The cause or author of it is the Holy Spirit. The change itself consists in the commencement of holiness in the heart and the means by which it is brought about are comprised in the varied exhibitions of the truth of God. This unillustrated statement would probably meet the views of all who love and preach the essential and fundamental principles of the gospel. There is one branch of this subject, however, on which there is at least a semblance of controversy between men who are equally attached to the doctrines of grace. I allude to the means of regeneration. These may all be comprised in the truth of God. When we say the truth of God is the appointed means of regeneration, we mean the truth of God is published by God himself and is attended to by unregenerate men. By a variety of methods, God has diffused his truth over different portions of the earth, and thus he is using the means of regeneration. In different ways, unregenerate men are directing their attention to the truth of God, and thus they are using the means of regeneration. It is important to a right interpretation of many passages of Scripture which speak of means, as well as to a full and just view of the subject, to make the distinction between means as used by God with unregenerate men, and means as used by the unregenerate men themselves. This general view we propose to exhibit in the following dissertation. It is of some importance that our minds be satisfied that there are means of regeneration appointed by God. This sentiment is abundantly inculcated in the scriptures. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Is not my word a sapphire, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. In Christ Jesus have I begotten you through the gospel. Being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God. I am planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which shall believe on me through their word. The scriptures uniformly represent the kingdom of grace as a kingdom of means. Though God himself renews the heart, it is not without the instruments and means of his appointment. We have confirmation of this truth and the results of universal observation and experience. Apart from the regeneration of infants so far as is known to us, God never regenerates the soul without means. The whole history of experimental piety demonstrates nothing more conclusively than that wherever God sends the regenerating influences of his spirit, he sends a means of regeneration. It is not denied that God can regenerate men without means, but does he regenerate them without means? The God of nature can create a harvest of grain amid the wilds of an uncultivated and untrodden forest, but where has he done it? And the God of grace can arrest the attention of men and convince them of sin, and lay them at the footstool of mercy without the aid of religious privileges. But where has he done it? We may not affirm that he cannot convey to the mind enveloped in thickest darkness some rays of heavenly light. It is possible that truth may be communicated to a benighted pagan through the medium of some of the works of God, and that a mere babe in Christ may be born where the light of revelation never shone. But is it a reality? Where have men been regenerated without the means of regeneration? Was it in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? Was it on the heart of the eunuch of Ethiopia? Was it in the family of Cornelius? Was it in the land of our forefathers on the other side of the western ocean? Was it here in this new world? 
or amid all these scenes of divine mercy, do you discover the visitations of particular providence preparing the way for the Son of Man and preventing the Spirit by the mission of His Word? The truth is, men must be placed under the dispensations of the gospel. They must attend on the means of instruction. They must be roused from their indifference to God and eternity. They must be affected by the obligations and motives to personal godliness. They must become acquainted with the method of salvation, or they never will become thoughtful, anxious, convinced sinners, and be never born of God and made heirs of heaven. To confirm this representation, we may advert to the actual condition of those who are destitute of the means of God's appointment. What is their character? What are their hopes and prospects? Survey those countries from which the Lord of heaven and earth has in his holy supremacy withheld his spirit, and you will fix precisely on those forms which he has withheld the means of regeneration. Fix your eye upon the continent or the kingdom where the light of revelation never shines, where the voice of the living ministry is never heard, where the holy Sabbath never detaches the minds of men from their habitual absorption in things seen and temporal to the solemn contemplation of things unseen and eternal, and you shall find a land where men grope in darkness and stumble upon the mountains of death, where human impiety becomes a source of all that is vile and cruel, all that is intemperate and licentious, all that is earthly, sensual, and devilish, and where, if you pass through this moral wilderness in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, you shall not see one indigenous plant of righteousness. Or if you will be more minute in your survey and examine the character of the city, the village, the hamlet, the neighborhood, the family, the individual that is destitute of the means of regeneration, without fear of contradiction may it be asserted that from the multitude to the individual all will be found destitute of vital godliness. The omniscient God has said of such portions of the earth, where no vision is, the people perish. Over the abodes of such men the finger of the omnipotent has inscribed, without hope and without God in the world. All their conduct, the divine holiness has imprinted the label, abominable, disobedient, and to every good work, reprobate. If from facts already passed and now extent, we look into futurity with equal certainty do we see all the predictions relative to the extension of holiness in the earth, parallel with the means used for the conversion of men. When prophets foretell the glory of the Messiah and the enlargement of his empire, they speak of the wonders of that coming day as accomplished only through the instrumentality of truth. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. The Lord God shall take off the veil of the covering from the face of all nations. I saw an angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. But it is needless to extend this illustration. Both the scriptures and observations substantiate the fact that there are means of regeneration of God's appointment. The means which God has appointed for the regeneration of men are many and various. If we were to enumerate them, we should say among the most important are the Holy Scriptures, the Christian ministry, the Sabbath, the worship of God in the sanctuary, the religious services of the family, social, private, and secret prayer, together with the religious education of children. Whatever in a word is adapted to arrest the attention of men to moral and spiritual objects may be considered a means of regeneration. In whatever form the truth of God is presented to the mind, whether commingling with religious conversation or held up to the perceptions and serious contemplation and prayer, it is a means of regeneration. God addresses man in all the variety of instruction, by all the force of authority, by all the terrors of his judgment, and all the persuasions of his mercy by all the frowns and smiles of his providence, and by the frequent and powerful strivings of his spirit. Not only does he use means with them in great variety, but with unfeigned sincerity and urgency. All the means of regeneration are accompanied with the most solemn declarations of his desire that they may prove effectual. 
that they are no artificial measures will appear to anyone who reads the Bible. There is nothing either in the instructions which God has there communicated, or the law he has there proclaimed, or invitations of mercy he has there announced which looks like acting a part, or which partakes of cord formality. In every sentence and every line he is in earnest. He pleads with men with awful solemnity and unutterable tenderness as though he knew the time would come when they would mourn at the remembrance of privileges which they slighted. He says, Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. As though he would suppress every thought of insincerity on his part, he declares, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. As though he would condescend to men in paternal familiarity, he says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. As though he could not leave them to perish in their iniquity, he says, How shall I give you up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver you, Israel? How shall I make you as Adma? How shall I set you as Eboim? And as though he were impatient for their moral restoration and could entreat them to spare themselves, to spare him the woeful day, he beseeches them, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from your wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your vain thoughts lodge within you? Will you not be made clean? When shall it once be? Thus does God use a means of regeneration with unregenerate men. Nor is this all the truth on this subject. If means of regeneration have been appointed by God, then are all who enjoy them under obligation to make such a use of them as will answer the end of their appointment. If it were a manner of indifference whether men attend to the means, then is it of little moment that they have been instituted. It were as well to be without the Bible if men do not read, as well to be without the ministry of reconciliation if they do not hear as well to have no Sabbath and no sanctuary if it is harmless to disregard them. But while we say this, there are other thoughts we may not suppress. It is important to inquire, how do unregenerate men use the means of regeneration? It is not denied that they use them. It is no unusual thing for unregenerate men to perform all the external duties which God has required. They read the scriptures. They remember the Sabbath day and spend it in the observation of devotion. They hear the preached word and they attend on all the divine institutions. They often engage in these services with great apparent propriety and not infrequently with a diligence and decency which indicate a serious mind. In a multitude of instances, they are not satisfied with occasional acts of external devotion, but spend much time in prayer and in crying anxiously and mightily to God for mercy. All this they do, and considered as mere external observances, their conduct is unexceptionable. But may there not be, after all, radical deficiency in their best and most serious performances? Though it may not be denied that unregenerate men use the means, it must be confessed that they never use them as they ought to use them. They never use them with sincerity. There is no correspondence between their professions and their character. There is no correspondence between their lips and their heart, nor between their heart and their conduct. They draw near to God with their mouth and honor him with their lips, while their heart is far from him. Notwithstanding their professions of seriousness, which their use of the means always implies, it is possible for them to be stupid and unfeeling as a stone, and in the very solemnities in which they are occupied to suffer their hearts like the fool's eyes to be at the ends of the earth, notwithstanding their professions of self-abasement, self-distrust, and humility, which their use of the means always involves, it is a known common thing for them to have no such view of their sins and their ill desert as they profess to have when they draw near to God. The heart of every unregenerate man is a self-righteous heart, and it may be that unregenerate men never feel more of a spirit of self-righteousness than when engaged in external acts of devotion. Notwithstanding all their most solemn expressions of reverence and esteem for God, 
which their use of means also always implies. It is no uncommon thing for them to carry into their religious services a sensible hostility to his character, his laws, and his grace. Notwithstanding their professed desire for holiness, the melancholy fact is they are enemies of holiness, and every feeling of their heart is in league with sin. Though they profess to be seeking and striving to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it is no unusual thing for them to feel that they are at heart unfriendly to the spirit and society of the heavenly world, and with a full view of the nature of its holy salvation, to be themselves conscious that they choose death rather than life. But whether they are conscious of it or not, we know the fact is so. Every unregenerate man dislikes and rejects the terms of salvation, and is not willing to have the salvation the gospel offers on any terms. Now all this is most insincere and disingenuous, and there is a great want of truth and fidelity of heart in such a use of the means of regeneration. Do you ask, is it so that there is no sincerity in anxious seeking sinners? Are all their tears and anxiety dissembled tears and anxiety? Doubtless they are sincerely anxious, but what does their anxiety and sincerity amount to more than an earnest desire to be delivered from hell, to maintain their alienation from God with impunity? And in this, the devils may be as anxious and sincere as they are. Another remark, therefore, in relation to the use which unregenerate men make of the means of grace, it is important to subjoin, it is a wrong and sinful use, nor is this at all a doubtful point. God requires men to use the means of regeneration only as expressions of their heart. He neither requires nor forbids any external action separate from the heart. He requires a good and forbids a bad heart, and requires and forbids nothing but what is an expression of a heart which is either good or evil. But are not the hearts of unregenerate men entirely sinful? And is not all their moral conduct therefore entirely sinful? The external conduct of men, even when it assumes the most sacred and imposing form, is just as sinful as the heart from which it flows. The only way to prove any action to be sinful is to show that it is done from a wicked heart. And since unregenerate men always act from a wicked heart, their heart always vitiates their use of the means of regeneration. Nor let it be forgotten that the light which unregenerate men resist in the enjoyment of means augments and aggravates their sinfulness. The scriptures represent the knowledge of duty as the highest aggravation of human guilt. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men have loved darkness rather than light. He that knows his master's will and does it not shall be beaten with many stripes. If I had not come among them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. That which renders one course of conduct more sinful than another is not so much the external action that is performed as the light resisted in performing it. Impenitent men know their duty, the more they are familiar with the means of regeneration. For one great design of means is to inform them. They not only may resist as great light in using the means as at any other time, but they usually resist greater. They never do, perhaps, indulge such strong and direct opposition to God as when their conscience is so far enlightened by the means of regeneration as to leave them imminently without excuse. God is then most fully in their view, and they then have an opportunity which perhaps they never have at any other time of seeing and hating both Christ and his Father. Hence the hearts of the unregenerate may be awfully sinful while they stand before God supplicating his mercy or performing any other external act of devotion. It is possible for them to be urged to the use of the means by the worst motives and the indulgence of the most selfish and sinful affections. It would not be beyond the truth to say that many an unregenerate man has been externally engaged in the means of regeneration while he has at heart felt such vigorous opposition to God and holiness that he would if it were in his power to throne the Most High. But however this may be, we know that a heart of enmity to God is never urged to the use of means from motives that are pure and holy, and therefore that all the use which unregenerate make of them is unholy and sinful. In no other way than this are means used by unregenerate men themselves. It is important, therefore, that we proceed to show how such a use of means is connected with regeneration. 
We have seen that such a use of them is connected with regeneration because without means men are not regenerate. It is acknowledged that such a use of them is insincere and unholy. How, then, is such a use of them connected with regeneration? Here it is important to observe several things if we would come at the truth as revealed in the scriptures. It is not because such a use of the means is acceptable to God. If such a use of the means is insincere and unholy, God cannot approve it. God approves nothing but holiness. It is not the time when, nor the place where, nor the form with which men attend on means, but the heart with which they attend, that is the object of the divine regard. Hence the apostle affirms, without faith it is impossible to please God. Solomon says, he that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. And again he says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. God inquires of ancient Israel, to what purpose is a multitude of your sacrifices to me? When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hands to tread my court? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even a solemn meeting. Our Lord also confirms the testimony of Isaiah concerning that people when he says, This people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, who paid a more decent and punctual regard to the means than the Pharisees and scribes. And yet the same unerring judge says to them, You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? We need not therefore hesitate in saying that such a use of the means is not connected with regeneration because it is acceptable to God, nor is it because such a use of the means is interested in any of the divine promises. This has often been supposed. Great and good men have believed and taught that the word of God contains unequivocal promises of grace to the exertions of unregenerate men. Would unregenerate men comply with the requisitions of the gospel? There are not wanting great and precious promises to support and comfort them and to encourage every right exertion, but there are no promises to an insincere and unholy use of the means. There are passages of Scripture which promise grace to those who seek and ask and knock and strive and wrestle to enter into the kingdom of God. But if any man will take his concordance and compare Scripture with Scripture, He will be convinced that the sacred writers never use these terms in application to the exertions of unregenerate men. What efforts of the unregenerate assume in this respect a fairer character than their prayers? And yet of these it is affirmed. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and does his will, him he hears. The scriptures are also most explicit in informing us that all the promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Where then is the promise of regenerating grace to the man who has no interest in Christ Jesus, who can appropriate a promise in the gospel that does not exercise a faith of the gospel? As I said, this is a promise altogether of a peculiar kind, and is made to encourage unregenerate men in the diligent use of the means. But if it is a promise of regenerating grace, then it is it virtually a promise of eternal life, so that the amount of what is here contended for is that there is a particular class of unbelievers who have the promise of eternal life. There is no such promise. Men who do not ask in faith deceive themselves if they think they shall receive anything from the Lord until they become new creatures, all men without exception and are a state of existing condemnation. As soon as they repent and believe the gospel, all the promises of the new covenant are theirs. But until then, if there be a promise that reaches them, it must be one that is perfectly consistent with their present condemnation, since he that believes not is condemned already. It must be one that is perfectly consistent with the execution of the threatening at any moment. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. If there are promises of grace to the efforts of unregenerate men, then do the terms of salvation fall short of holiness. If there are promises of grace to their prayers and God regards the prayers of the unregenerate as he never regards the prayers of the regenerate. The psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And finally, there be promises of grace to the efforts of unregenerate men. Then do they fail of their accomplishment. 
For we see every day that there are those who engage in these external services, and with great seriousness and anxiety who lose their convictions and never become pious. The truth on this interesting point is clearly stated in the following remarks of Jonathan Edwards, quote, As long as men reject Christ and do not believe in him, however they may be awakened, and however strict and laborious they may be in religion, they have the wrath of God abiding on them. They are his enemies and children of the devil, and it is uncertain whether they shall ever obtain mercy. God is under no obligation to show them mercy, nor will he be, if they fast and pray and cry never so much, and they are then especially provoking God under those tears, that they stand it out against Christ, and will not accept of an offered Savior, though they are so much in need of him, in quote. Thoughts on the Present Revival of Religion in New England Nor is such a use of the means connected with regeneration, because in thus using them unregenerate men make any approximation to holiness, apparently means make them better, may remove their ignorance and stupidity. They may check outward corruptions and gross immorality. They may render the unregenerate better informed or more useful members of society. But while in these respects they make them apparently better, there is in their character no approximation to holiness. Their wickedness consists entirely in their hearts, and though their external conduct become better, their hearts may be all the while growing worse. And this is the tendency of the human heart under the means of regeneration. The earth which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it, and bears briars and thorns, is near unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. The more light is poured upon their understandings, the more convictions press their consciences, the more their attention is arrested by the requisitions of the gospel. So long as this light is resisted, these convictions opposed, and these requisitions and motives disregarded, so long are they themselves increasing in guilt, and plunging deeper into condemnation. And hence we see that if men of this description never become converted, they always become hardened in iniquity, and are very apt to be giants in guilt. He that often being reproved hardens his neck shall suddenly fall in that without remedy. This suggests another remark on this part of our subject. Such a use of means does not always terminate in regeneration. We have already seen that when men are regenerate, such a use of the means ordinarily precedes their regeneration, though not acceptable to God, though not interested in any divine promise, and though there is in all their efforts no approximation to holiness, to a greater or less extent, such a use of the means precedes regeneration. But this is not always a result. Many are called, but few are chosen. There are first which shall be last, and there are last which shall be first. The election obtained it, and the rest were blinded. It is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. The same means which God uses to save some, serve, to destroy others. The child that was born in Bethlehem was set for the fall as well as the rising again of many. Means have a widely different effect upon different persons. Some they save, and others they destroy. There are sovereignty attending the operations of the divine spirit, which is inscrutable to men. The wind blows where it lists. Regenerate men see and admire this, and exclaim, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, for your mercy and for your truth's sake. And unregenerate men see and complain of this, you often hear them say, Why is the blessing withheld from me and imparted to others? Why from me who abuse the means so long and imparted to others not half so laborious in the use of them? It is no uncommon thing to find those who have attended on the means a long time, unrelieved in their anxiety and hardened in sin, while on the other hand those may be found who have paid far less attention to them and perhaps here and there one who is accidentally thrown into the house of prayer for a single Sabbath, who is broken down and subdued by omnipotent grace. These things we cannot dispute, because we see they are facts. When we consider the manner in which the unregenerate always use the means of regeneration, we may not wonder they should often be unavailing, 
and rather do we wonder that they are ever intended with a divine blessing. No doubt there are those who use a means and resist the obligation to them to the last, who will at the last find that their persevering abuse of them is not forgotten by the God of righteousness, and that while they have become the savor of life to life in them that are saved, have also become the savor of death to death in them that perish. If then these things are true, we come to the inquiry with still deeper interest. How are the means of regeneration as used by unregenerate men connected with their regeneration? What is the proper end and design of them? And what purposes do they accomplish? These inquiries are the more appropriate because we all believe they do not change the heart. I say they do not change the heart. There are those we know who defend a different sentiment. The Pelagians affirm that the transformation of character which the scriptures denominate regeneration is effected by clear and repeated exhibitions of divine truth, not as a means, but as the efficient cause of the change, and that in turning from sin to holiness, the heart yields not to an immediate influence of the Holy Spirit, but to the exclusive power of a well-directed moral suasion without any superadded divine influence. Arminians affirm substantially the same sentiment except that they hold to the idea of the divine influence and consider it communicated to all alike, so that the difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate is made not by special grace but by common grace specially improved. But are these the revelations of God? Are the theories of men? To say nothing of that class of scriptures which attribute the work of regeneration to the immediate efficiency of the Holy Spirit, the peculiarity of the following passage cannot have escaped our notice. When Moses reminded the children of Israel of all the wonders of mercy and judgment in which God had passed before them, he took particular pains to inform them that all these had not availed to their regeneration. Quote, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, the great temptations which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles that the Lord has not given you in heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear, to this day, end quote. As though he would impress the thought that holiness was the immediate effect of divine power, in distinction from all other ways of producing it. John declares of those who were adopted into the family of Christ that they were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Paul says to the Ephesians that they were regenerate, not by that all-pervading power simply which holds the universe in existence and sustains the uniform revolutions of the natural world, but by the exceeding greatness of that power which God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We would hesitate in affirming with some most excellent men that the principal reason why the immediate operation of the Spirit of God in the production of holiness is necessary is found in any deficiency or intellectual capacity in unregenerated men, or any deficiency in the moral sense, or that this divine influence is necessary to make the moral agents and to originate their obligations to piety. The principal reason why this influence is necessary is that unregenerate men are enemies to God and holiness, and their hostility is so unyielding that no light communicated to their understanding, no obligations addressed to their conscience, no motives presented to their hopes or their fears can produce holy love. In unequivocally recognizing this important principle, there is therefore some embarrassment attending the question, what end did the means of regeneration answer? If the Spirit of God is the cause of holiness, why should not his agency be exerted alone? What is the use of means, if it is not expected they will exert an efficiency and produce in a new heart? In this place, it may not be amiss to premise that if no connection between the means and the end could be discovered by us, so long as God has established a connection, and the end is not accomplished without the means, this furnishes no proof of their inutility. God may see reasons, for their appointment, which we do not see. Ezekiel could not see what agency his voice had in animating the bones in the valley of vision. Naaman could not see what benefit would accrue to him from washing seven times in the waters of Jordan. Joshua could not see what good was to be accomplished by blowing the ram's horns and encompassing the walls of Jericho. The multitude could not discover the use of applying the clay to the eyes of the blind man. 
But their ignorance does not satisfy us that these means were of no utility. I would be slow to affirm that we know nothing of the end which the means of regeneration accomplish, though if it were so, I would not question the wisdom of their appointment. But we do know, and can easily see some things they accomplish, which in the method of grace that God has established, are desirable and important. First, to enlighten the understanding. Unregenerate men are in awful darkness. The empire of the great adversary is the empire of darkness, and the chains in which his subjects are bound are chains of darkness. The stupidity which wicked men indulge, and the tranquility and peace they enjoy, have their foundation in blindness and ignorance. If their sins and their hopes are ever disturbed, light must be let in upon their minds. Gross darkness which covers the people must be dissipated. They must see their guilty and wretched condition, and the only escape from it, or they cannot be saved. Without some degree of intellectual light, it is impossible for them to possess the holiness which God requires. The graces of the Spirit are all exercised in view of some particular object distinctly discerned by the eye of the mind. The love, repentance, faith, hope, joy, and submission of the gospel has each its specific object and cannot be exercised until the object itself be brought before the understanding. It is not for us to limit the operations of the Spirit in the immediate communications of its truth to the soul. I know not how frequently this communication is made, and have no doubt that it is made especially to those who die in childhood. But since this is not the ordinary way in which the knowledge of the truth is imparted, it may be justly said to be indispensable to the salvation of men, that they be furnished with and use the outward and ordinary means. In this way only they become acquainted with the being, character, and government of God, with the nature, extent, and criminality of their own moral corruption, with the only method of salvation, and with all the obligations and motives to holiness. And it is of importance to bear in mind that all the instruction which means convey can be easily understood. They are not addressed to stocks or idiots, but to men, and though they are unregenerate men, yet they are reasonable men who retain all their intellectual faculties and are capable of understanding and appreciating every truth in the Bible. This, therefore, is one of the ends accomplished by the means of regeneration. The minds of men are awakened from their stupidity and roused to the consideration of those grand objects in view of which the soul is regenerate. There is another important purpose answered by the means of regeneration. They impress the conscience. The more light is thrown into the sinner's understanding, the more apt his conscience is to be awake to its obligations. The proper office of conscience is to teach him the difference between right and wrong, to give him impressions of his obligations to holiness, to condemn the sinfulness of all of his conduct, and to make him feel that he deserves to be punished for all of his iniquity. When once the understanding is duly enlightened, conscience is infested with awful authority. It belongs to conscience to judge and dictate. When the concerns of religion are presented before the mind, conscience claims the right of deciding and controlling in this important business. She makes the sinner acknowledge that what God has required is no more than his known duty. She constrains him to feel that there is nothing unreasonable in any internal affection or external conduct which the gospel enjoins and challenges him to find any ground of exception to the divine requisitions. She strips him of every excuse, silences his every objection, closes his lips, turns his strength into weakness and his hopes into despair, and prostrates him a guilty, convinced, and condemned sinner at the feet of sovereign mercy. And because he will not forsake his sins and submit himself to Jesus Christ, she pours upon him the sentence of her severest condemnation sets his iniquities in order before him, fills him with reproach and bitterness, destroys his peace and makes him feel that he deserves the wrath and the curse of an angry God. Not infrequently the arrow sinks deep. The soul is racked with inward disquietude and painful convictions, terrifying apprehensions, unappeased anxiety and keen distress throw him alternately upon his own resources and the resources of those around him till every refuge fails, till he feels himself sinking into the pit, and in the bitterness of his soul cries out, What shall I do to be saved? 
But these impressions on the conscience, these convictions with no more than the ordinary strivings of the Spirit are made by the means of regeneration, the Word of God has become quick and powerful. The Word of the Spirit is entering the soul. Another object accomplished by the means of regeneration is that they illustrate the obduracy of the human heart. The native tendency of truth is to enter the heart, and where there is no resistance that would enter it, and prove the occasion of all holiness, but the heart reluctates and resists. What ought to call forth its love excites its enmity. What ought to provoke its penitence gives resolution to its impenitence. What ought to allure its confidence gives rise to its suspicion and jealousy. Now it is obvious the strength of this opposition is fully evinced only by the measures adopted to subdue it. These are the means of regeneration. If it should appear by actual experiment that no extent and clearness of instruction, no force of the divine authority, no frowns and no smiles of an all-pervading providence, no accumulated penalties of the divine law, no liberal invitations of mercy, no cheering assurances of pardon, no fears of hell and no hopes of heaven can avail to incline the heart of enmity to love, charm or terrify the unregenerate mind into a feeling of attachment to God and holiness, then would these varied expedients only illustrate the impenetrable hardness of the human heart. But all this does appear, and has been manifested wherever the experiment has been tried. Hence, when all the force of truth and power of moral suasion have been exhausted, without giving rise to one holy emotion, having the means used to subdue the depravity of man, most affecting evidence of its unbending obduracy. Nowhere does the heart appear so desperately wicked as in its resistance of all delight and motives of the gospel, and in its inglorious superiority over all the means of grace and salvation. Nor are there wanting reasons why it is desirable this illustration of human obduracy should be made. To the sinner himself it evinces that he is stout-hearted, and far from righteousness. To the sinner himself it evinces how low he has fallen by his iniquity and how abased it becomes him to lie. On the mind of every renewed man, it leaves a deep and lasting impression of the sovereignty and fullness of that grace which rescued him as a brand from the burning and prepares him feel his everlasting unworthiness at the same time to appreciate his everlasting obligations to the grace of his Redeemer. And even where the only result is that such an illustration demonstrates the righteousness of the condemning sentence, it is greatly desirable that it should appear that unregenerate men are lost, not through any lack of forbearance on the part of God, not through any deficiency of instruction or allurement, not through any severity of justice that is prescribed the offers of forgiveness, but through their voluntary abuse of the means of regeneration and their persevering rejection of offered mercy. If they had gone down to hell without the means of grace and salvation, the universe might have pitied them because the universe would not have known but that they might have been reclaimed. When it is known that a way of salvation was revealed, that the means of salvation were brought to their door, and that they perish only through their own fault and their abuse of means, every mouth will be stopped and all will feel that it is reasonable men should forfeit what they thus reject. It will be in no small degree to the honor of divine justice when the final sentence is executed upon the wicked, that no offers of pardon, no means could reclaim them. I may add another end accomplished by the adoption of means is the exhibition of their own powerlessness and the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. While means are the ordinary antecedents to regeneration, Regeneration is by no means a uniform consequent of means. We know the understanding may be enlightened, the conscience impressed, the obduracy of the heart illustrated, and a sinner never become a converted man. He may be pricked in the heart and inquire with awful anxiety what he must do to be saved, and after all be an impenitent man and the only proper answer to him is to direct him to do that he has never done. Repent. And it is important to remember this. It is not true, as is frequently represented, that where the mere work of the law upon the conscience, however distressing, is begun, God will carry it on till it end in conversion. Manners of fact have often proved the last state of such men to be worse than the first. The commencement of holiness in the soul is that good work, 
which if begun we have confidence will be carried on to the day of Jesus Christ. Still, no man becomes a converted man without this antecedent influence. God first places men under the sound of the gospel, leads them to attend to the means of instruction, convinces them of sin, and then, if he means to save them, exerts his power to change their hearts. Now, it is easy to see that by the interposition of these means, a forcible exhibition is made of their own powerlessness in the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. Without the adoption of means that would never appear in fact, the means are incompetent to the work, or that the immediate power of God is at all necessary. If the experiment had been tried, there would have been no evidence apart from the divine testimony that the regeneration of men is an enterprise not to be accomplished without the arm of omnipotence. But when the most hopeful expedients have actually been tried and tried in vain, there is a practical demonstration, I do not say of their fruitlessness, but of their inefficacy. When the strongest obligations and most winning persuasive to holiness have exhausted all their energy without producing one holy emotion, when the supreme God has exhausted all the force of his commands, and men have trampled on his authority, when he has exhausted all the weight of his denunciations, and they have despised his justice, when he exhausted all the overtures of his mercy, and they have contemned his favor, when he has well nigh exhausted his patience and long-suffering and opening their eyes to see their danger, and awaken their consciences to feel their guilt, and all this diversified discipline only proves that the obduracy of men holds on its way with all the means to subdue it any obstacles to their conversion rise higher by every effort to surmount them. Then, and not till then, are the declarations of the Bible confirmed by sound experience, and it is known and confessed that the power of God himself must be brought to bear upon a mass of resistance, the strength of which was little thought of until every other method proved abortive. It is at the hour when every other refuge fails, when everything is hung round with darkness and despondency, when the sinner himself feels that he is sinking into perdition, and when men and angels might inquire what resistless power can break this heart of adamant, what mighty grasp can lift this rebel from the deep abyss, that the interposition of the Holy Spirit is visible almost to the eye of sense, and glorious beyond thought, nor is this a consideration of trivial moment. When I consider that God made all things for himself, when I learn from the scriptures that the manifestation of his own intrinsic excellence is the ultimate end of all that he does, when I hear him saying with peculiar emphasis, and again and again repeated that the dispensations of his providence and grace are so directed that men may know that he is the Lord, when I see for myself how much he has done to bring out his glorious nature from the retirements of eternity, to the view and admiration of the principalities and powers in heavenly places and men on the earth, when I witness the wonderful exhibitions of his power and glory in the effusions of his spirit, and recollect that these brightest exhibitions of mercy would be dim and indistinct but for the developments they make of deity, and when I think of the untold importance to himself and the universe, of the most distinct enunciation of his awful name, the most impressive exhibition of his stupendous, his amazing glory, I am compelled to feel that the means of regeneration are not without utility and answer a most desirable and important end. If there are only significant indices of the exceeding greatness of God's power and accomplishing a work to which all other efforts have proved inadequate, it is thus that in the means of regeneration is used by God with unregenerate men, and is used by unregenerate men themselves are connected with regeneration, to enlighten the understanding, to impress the conscience, to illustrate the obduracy of the heart, to evince our own powerlessness and the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit, and thus bring God to the view of men and prepare the way for his grace to be illustriously triumphant, accomplish that without which men are not regenerated, and without which neither men nor angels can appreciate the regeneration. The truth on this interesting subject therefore lies within a narrow compass. Man has fallen by his iniquity, so criminally averse is he to God and holiness that nothing will transform his character except the powerful agency of the Holy Spirit. God is under no obligation to men to exert his transforming agency, and when he does it, he communicates an unpromised favor, and in a way wisely adapted to the intellectual and moral nature of his creatures, as well as is wisely adapted to show forth his own glory, and that is through the instrumentality of the truth.
This is the amount of what I can learn from the word and providence of God in relation to the means of regeneration. It is easy to see what means accomplish and what they do not accomplish. If after the means God uses with men and men use with themselves, they are not holy, it is because means cannot reach them, and the strongest effort and deepest impression leaves them in the hands of him who kills and who makes alive, who has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens, from whose hand none can deliver and who has a right to do what he will with his own. There are then means of regeneration appointed by God and we have great encouragement to use them with our fellow men. The means are God's as well as the success of them. When we remember that God does not operate the less really because he operates instrumentally, we may bring home the obligation to extend the means of his appointment with something more than the hope that by so doing we extend the sphere of divine influence. We have strong and perhaps conclusive reason to believe that where God sends a means, there he will to some extent at least send the agent, and that his own spirit will accompany his institutions to make them the wisdom of God and the power of God to salvation. To every sincere lover of God and man, therefore, the preceding illustration addresses the language of encouragement to every parent, to every teacher, to every minister of the gospel, to every student in theology, it speaks in tones of awful authority when it declares that man cannot be saved without the means of grace and salvation. It is the appointed method of God's providence to influence men to action through the agency and zeal of their fellow men. So is it the method of his grace. And I don't see why we have not just as much encouragement to use a means of regeneration with our fellow men as we have to actuate them in the common concerns of human life. It is the purpose of God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And is it not enough to animate us in our work? That such is a method of God's appointment. What higher encouragement exists in that we may be fellow workers with God. Well, may every minister of the gospel say, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has enabled me. For that he counted me faithful, put in me into the ministry. And I would that we might be urged forward to our work by the ardent desire of a pious heart. They can be gratified with nothing short of the happiest instrumentality in the salvation of men.